Hey guys, it's Adi Savir and you're listening to the All Blacks Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the All Blacks Podcast. My name is Jesse Johnson and today I'm coming to you from the City of London. That's right, the podcast has ventured its way into the Northern Hemisphere. Today on the show we are very lucky to be joined by a true modern day great of the game, someone who has over his time amassed 74 test caps for Wales. A national record, 49 49 of those as captain. He was first named Welsh captain at the age of 22, going on to lead them in both the 2011 and 2015 Rugby World Cups. In addition to that, he won five test caps for the British and Irish Lions, and alongside Martin Johnson, he is only one of two men to lead the Lions on back-to-back tours. He's a one-club man, playing well over 100 games for his hometown club, the Cardiff Blues. He is, of course... The one and only Sammy Warburton. Sam, welcome to the show. Hi guys, thanks for having me on. Good to be here. <laughs> one heck of a career that really, isn't it? When you when you uh, put it like that, it sounds all right. When you when you reel it back, it's not too for twenty eight as well. Jeez, because that was uh, the Lions series was my, I didn't know at the time, but they, that was going to be my last professional game at twenty eight. So I only had uh, maybe nine professional seasons, which you know now when you compare that to. You know, some boys have played up to 15 pro seasons, you know, it was cut a bit short, but um, yeah, looking back, you know, I'm pleased with what I did. Oh, certainly, I think, you know, um, the, I know the seven-year-old Sam Warburton wanted to be a Tottenham Hotspur yeah. star, but 14 years old at Whitchurch High School, um, could have you dreamt of something as good as, as what you've gone on to achieve? It's always what I wanted, and it's probably pretty similar to back home for you guys, like, I was football was my first sport. And that's because my dad's from England, see, so that's why I was sort of just like not nurtured to play football, but that's what I was introduced to. And then schooling in Wales, um, you can't be over six foot quick and not be given a rugby ball in your hands. You know, the teachers are going to get a rugby ball in your hands. So I got a rugby ball in my hands from the age of about 10 and then probably from like 11, 12 onwards. And I, like any Welsh kid, I got the bug and I was gonna, was desperate to play for Wales. So... Yeah, from about 14 years of age, you know, I sort of set my sights on playing for the Lions and like because that's not the pinnacle of what we could do over here. And yeah. it's nice that when um, when we talk, when I talk to other players, obviously England of 2003 are the only teams have won the World Cup. So those boys have played for World Cup, their World Cup winners and British and Irish Lions. And I've heard some of them guys speak, and they would choose being a Test team player for the Lions over their World Cup victory. You know, which for right. me, who hasn't obviously won a World Cup. It's really nice to hear. So, like when you play for Wales, you tour around the world and stuff, and people swap shirts after games. Um, but then, like, it, it, we know how much it's, it's very complimentary. You know, it's nice that when we go to like Australia for the Lions, then New Zealand for the Lions, how keen everybody is to swap shirts. It kind of shows how high regard people hold the Lions in mm. as well, which is nice. Yeah. You know, so because um, we think the world of it over here, but it's nice that that seems to be the same elsewhere as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it's, it's obviously evident, and, and to bring it back a little bit, because I do want to go into that, that childhood, which has obviously played such a big part in, in shaping the player you were. Um, we've, got a, we've got a huge show today, so we're obviously going to cover off later on the, the month we have ahead of us. Um, the World Cup is upon yeah. us, it has started, and by the time the show airs, the first uh, weekend the games will be played. So everything we say now on the Thursday is probably going to be highly yeah. done <laughs> after, after a weekend. But um, a, a personal highlight for you just quickly, the, the book is out today, Sam Warburton, The Open Side. Yeah, so um, when I'm retired, you know, you get sort of publishers wanting to do a book, which is which is flattering. So, um, but then, yeah, the publisher with now, like, they were going to call it something like too big, too fast, too strong. More about the game, not not myself, because I wasn't the biggest, fastest, yeah. strongest player, but just about the game of rugby and where it's going. Then the tech starts coming back. 
particularly about like the emotions I was going through during the Lions tour in New Zealand and just what it's like being a pro rugby player. Yep. And because it's so honest, I think that's why they thought they would call it open side, obviously because of my playing position, because it's just a, probably an unusually honest book about the reality of being a rugby player. And not just me, I'm sure it's the same for the New Zealand lads down south. Like, it's a privilege to be a rugby player, and it genuinely is, and it's, and it's an awesome occupation. Um, but it's tough. Like, you know, it's tough. You know, when the microscope's on you and then there's, the pressure is huge, it's often the higher up you go. I find almost the less enjoyable it is to some degree because you're, you're part of just like a cutthroat, ruthless operation which has to perform. So sometimes I walk a dog and I see like Parks Pitch Kids playing and I'm like, <laughs> oh God, I miss those days. Like, you know, where you can just play, play a ball and there's no consequences if you make a mistake or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then like, you know, I, I said once about, I said this 80-20 thing before. So I said 80% of my career I didn't like, 20% mm. I did. Which sounds quite drastic, but then, and like very ungrateful. Which, but then if I explain myself, I'm like, well, it's because the 80% is training in the cold, wet, horrible rain when you're already sore from your game and going for MRI scans, having injections, um, having operations, time away from the family, criticism in the press, injury, fall, like that, all that stuff it covers. But then the 20% of the glory and the success of being with the boys and being a pro sports person and all the things that come with that, that 20% outweighs that 80% of negative tenfold. So that's why it's worth doing. But the reality is very different to what I think the perception is. So that's why I sort of just talk in the book about, you know, the game from a physicality point of view, the injuries are sustained, the mental side of the game as well. Mm. So hopefully it gives people just like quite a good realistic insight into actually what it is like to be a professional rugby player. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I've managed to speak through quite a bit of the, the pre-release and it's, a, and it's a fascinating read. And like you say, it's got all those... Um, all those permutations around the number seven, the open side, yeah. you know, you opening up to to life as a, as a rugby player and what, you, what you've just said. Um, one piece that really <laughs> stuck me right at the start, actually, and and uh, forgive me if I've got the pronunciation wrong, but a PE teacher of yours at school, Gwyn, yeah. Gwyn Morris. Nailed it. Nailed yeah. it. Got <laughs> yeah. the first time that, that, that Welsh yeah. really sometimes <laughs> makes it quite hard for, for the New Zealander. But yeah. um, Gwyn looks like he sort of, I don't know, lit the match inside of you that kind of fueled yeah. the fire. There's a quote from the book where he says something along the lines of Sam, the hardest working player will win. Like if you if you train harder than your opponent or if you yeah. prepare harder than your opponent, you will win. How, sort of how important was, was yeah. hearing that bit of advice at that age? Yeah, he sort of brought to my attention, he was the first guy who brought that sort of professional mindset um, to me, which I loved. So he came to our school at about 14, and we ended up winning national championships and stuff, and we had a handy team. Yeah. And, um, but he brought that to us, and I loved it. So I was almost like acting like a pro when I was about 14, 15 years of age, without realising. So like changing like my school lunchboxes from like jam sandwiches and crisps to like tinted tuna and bananas, and like training at lunchtime and training after school and running late at night. And watching recently, um, I saw Richard McCall's documentary, and he yeah. seemed very similar. You know, it was all about work ethic, hard work, and he was somebody who was like an inspiration growing up to me. You know, somebody I used to study watching the game. I used to wake up what would be Saturday morning UK time, and in New Zealand, you guys would have been you know eleven hours ahead. So you were playing in the evening on a Saturday, and I'd be up Saturday morning watching the Crusaders. I loved it. You know, watching all them boys um, as a number seven, like studying the game. So like, you know, you hear it from people like Richie. Uh, from a Northern Hemisphere point of view, that like Johnny Wilkinson, you know, same sort of generation and same work ethic. So those kind of guys sort of inspired me, and I always wanted to pride myself on being the best pro I could possibly be. So that sort of stemmed from my days at Witches, but I, I held on to that through my whole career, and 
that's what I was like as a person, which is why I think I was picked as like a captain because um, I'm obviously like very competitive. But then like I think just the effect that you might have rubbing off on the boys, mm-hmm. just having that belief constantly, positive mindset, professional mindset. That's what I was like really, which is why I think Warren Gatlin picked me as captain. Yeah, yeah, it's a um, it's a fascinating sort of part of your journey, that leadership and, and getting those captaincy positions at such a young age. Um, and, and I do want to move on to that because I think, like I've just mentioned it, it was so, I think it was, you know, such an important part of why the rugby world loved you as a person and as a player was your leadership style, just as much as the aggression you played the game. Um, you know, if you fast forward quite a bit, you you sort of rose through the ranks really quickly, um, uh, debuted for Wales 20 years old, yeah. 2009, yeah. sort of playing with a lot of your childhood heroes at that time, yeah. only probably a handful of games under your belt. Um, 2011 in the summer, you're 22 years old, Warren Gatlin picks up the phone and he says, Sam, I'd like you to captain the team against the Barbarians. What's going through your head when, when Gats is calling you then? Please don't ask me to be captain. <laughs> uh, so yeah, like, tw- like twenty is quite young this day and age oh, for yeah. a back rower for a forward to get a cap, you know. So um, I was doing like fifteen caps in, and it was for the World Cup in two thousand eleven. Yeah, so yeah. he asked me to be captain. I said no initially, and then uh, he was like, I was having a lot of conversations with coaches and gats, so I like but twist my arm. But I was like. Well, you've got like Adam Jones and Alan Wynn Jones and Shane Williams and Stephen Jones and Gethin Jenkins, all those guys like hundred cappers, you know, give or take a yeah. couple, hundred cap guys. And I was like, why aren't why aren't they captain? Why me? I was like a fourteen cap, twenty two year old. But I think Gats quite like the idea of I might not have been the best captain at that moment in time, mm. but it was a long term view and strategy that he had over probably the next two or three World Cup cycles for me to have that role, which was similar to New Zealand again yeah, with yeah. Richie McCall. Sorry to keep referring to Richie, but I think it was quite a similar similar sort of thing they were looking at. So that's why I think, you know, I, you know they, I'm pretty sure, oh, I'm not sure, I don't want to sound but <laughs> I'm pretty sure their long term plan was for me to hold on to 19 like yeah, now, yeah. which I, I was hoping to be at this World Cup as well. But I said no for quite a few months and uh, after a while we, I was captain for three games because I just thought it was like a short term thing while our current captain was injured and we beat England and uh, we were like on the in the training ground on the Monday, Tuesday afterwards he said you still want to be captain? So I was like oh sorry mate like I, I, just, I can't do it it's not me like I'm a leader but I'm not a captain yeah. and people might be like what's the difference then? Well a leader's different because I was always a leader in the sense of like you know I was always an aggressive competitor Always believed in myself, you know, was good influence on the boys, you know, didn't really drink too much, trained hard, I was, you know, positive. So I've only been a leader, like, that's just where I am. But a captain then, you know, you've got to then work with referees a lot more, work on that communication with referees, and you've got to deal with the press, and you've got to do sponsorship and more commercial opportunities, and then you've got to oversee more of the tactics mm. and the decisions in the game, and you've got to be the diplomat and the role model. It's like, it's a lot more different being the captain, you know, so... Uh, leader and captain for me were very different things thought I was a leader didn't think I was a captain and then he showed me this clip from the game where we beat England in a warm-up match and uh, we won a penalty and he just pointed at the top of the laptop screen because I was in the analysis room with the uh, analyst boys and I just kept marching in from the top of the screen like punching the air tapping boys on the back picking them up off the floor went to our number 10 started organising like and chatting about what our next play was going to be relayed up to the forwards and we went off to the line-out when we kicked the touch he closed the laptop without saying anything and he just said that's leadership and that's what I wanted yeah. to do. So I didn't try and be fake, you know, I didn't want to, because, you know, you know, when you have captains, you're trying to be someone they're not. It stands mm-hmm. out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Stand, and you just got to be authentic, be true to yourself and just do it in your style, which back then probably wasn't what a lot of people expected because I'm naturally very 
sort of quiet and introverted in, in personality. But it's, it's not about the big sort of like heartfelt sort of speeches. You know, I just want you to leave on what you do on the pitch and just what you naturally feel at saying, you know. So that's what I was like in the younger days. And now when I'm older, like it, like it was much easier. Like, I'd yeah. like be captain of Lions now when I was when I finished in New Zealand. And then suddenly all those things I've been doing it for six, seven years, it was just like much easier. Mm. Always the pressure of being captain was there, but the actual responsibilities of being a captain didn't phase me. But yeah, very reluctant to begin with. <laughs> it's um it was incredible. I sort of remember it at the at the time as well because it like you say, it coincided with the two thousand eleven Rugby World Cup down in New Zealand and um, in the nicest possible way, you were still, I guess, relatively an, an unknown quantity yeah. at that point in time, particularly down South Russia and the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. I think you'd missed that, that tour of the year before with injury yeah. down to New Zealand. Said, so yeah. we didn't know too much about you. Um, but then there's a pool game, first pool match of the World Cup against South Africa. You go down narrowly, but you have a blinder um, win man of the match. Is that, you know, every great player announces themselves on the world stage in some way, shape or form. Do you think that World Cup was Sam Warburton announcing himself as, as a world-class seven? Yeah, so I remember, so I got my cap in 2009, I was slowly integrated into the squad over 12 months, started in all the Six Nations games, well, so Autumn 2000, yeah, started in all the Six Nations 2010, um, played in the Autumn series, the November series, and I remember, uh, you know, All Blacks come down, uh, Australia come down, South Africa come down, played against them all and sort of did well, but then you're playing in front of, like, predominantly a Northern Hemisphere audience, you know, so then went to the Six Nations in 2011 and had a really good Six Nations as well and got, like, nominated for playing the tournament and stuff, so up North, you know, you're making a bit of noise, yeah, but yeah. I always thought, and I say it now with guys, like, you've got to go on the Lions stage or the World Cup stage where you're on, like, neutral venues or away home, away venues, and you announce yourself on the world stage there, that's when you become, like, truly world-class because you can play well at home in front of your home stadium, and that's not, not easy, but that's easier to do. It's when you're in adversity away from home and you know, on the other side mm. of the world you can play against the best teams and turn up. But so I always set my sights on that World Cup and I'm wanting to sort of announce to like, you know, I want to earn the respect of New Zealand and South Africa and Australian fans, you know. So we played on South Africa in the first game and Gatlin said in the press conference that he pointed to me and he said, This guy's gonna be you know, he's one of the best sevens in the world, like, you know, and he's as good as all the other boys. And I remember thinking, Jesus, like I gotta <laughs> you. I gotta live up to this. And like, you know, I, I the guys who were around mm. at that time you know, were you know, there's some awesome sevens, you know, around then. So back then, you know, the three sevens going to that tournament were probably um well obviously Richie. Yeah. Um David Pocock, similar age to me, just a tad older, so but he'd already, you know, been playing down south, so boys knew about him. Then Heinrich Brousseau was really prominent in the two thousand nine Lions tour, so uh, he gave himself a good reputation. So I was up against Brousseau yeah. and then shot Burger. So I was like, Well, this is my chance now. So yeah, I played that game and um, got man of the match and then just because I just wanted to prove to people what I was about you know so yeah. that was a good World Cup for me and it was really nice because I got just walking on the streets of Auckland and Wellington I remember like so many New Zealand fans really nice and complimentary coming up to me because like number seven down there seems a pretty big deal yeah, you know like sure. back over it's number 10 uh, in Wales it's all about the number 10s yeah they get there they're the ones in the spotlight but it seems New Zealand the number seven is a sort of um, hot property down there and they're all like oh yeah brilliant number seven and all that and I'm just like, I'm always straight batting it. So I was like, oh, no. And I was like, oh, yeah, but what about Richie? Like, you know, Richie, you know, best seven in the world. And they were all like, ah, oh, yeah, he hasn't won a World Cup, though. And I was thinking, geez, like, this guy has got 100 caps. Yeah. Like, you know, best seven like, for the last, since he's been since he's been playing the last 10 years. 
and the public were like, yeah, but he hasn't won a World Cup like Phil War and George and these and Francois Pina and these mm. boys. I was like, and like obviously now you know he's got two under the belt, so he's uh, he's trumped them all. But like, it just impressed me the expectations yeah. of the fans in New Zealand, and that's why 2011 was good for us because we came in right under the radar, mm. all the attention naturally being New Zealand was on New Zealand I couldn't believe like, the pressure that was on those boys that World Cup you know yeah. and um, to pull through and get the win people would criticise maybe the final because it was a tight final and stuff but under the circumstances and the pressure that is like that is huge enormous like it's almost not an advantage when you're at home like that exactly. because the pressure is so big so you've got to give them credit for even like, getting through in any manner that they did but yeah so Wales managed to sort of almost like sneak through into a semi and people are like oh crikey Wales are in a semi-final how did this happen you know but yeah we ended up having it we had a decent run that time you certainly did I mean that was a it was a great game that first game against South Africa you, you narrowly went down um, like like you say but throughout the tournament you know building and building through the pool plays a great quarterfinal against Ireland um, and I think you've been a bit modest because you certainly did win over the New Zealand public during that, that six weeks I remember um, vividly all of us thinking who's this 22 year old who's come down playing number 7 jersey yeah. biceps are as big as David Pocock <laughs> and, and he's as strong over the ball as, yeah. as McCaw he's yeah. only 22 and he's a captain now but yeah. I think we all realised then we had a serious number 7 sort of on our hands for, for years to come yeah. um, and like you say progress through, comes to the semi-final, you're up against the French team who haven't had a very, well, have had a very lopsided World Cup, they've lost two yeah. pool games, a great quarter-final, um, yeah. but the team's in a little bit of a disarray, yeah. and we have to touch on it, because I'm sure no, this yeah. question <laughs> every single interview, the, uh, is the, the unfortunate red card in the 20th minute, so the accidental tip-tackle, um, you go down, your Wales play 14 men for, for 60 minutes, and narrowly loss, sort of you talk a lot in the book about you know the yeah. moment directly after. How about sort of the days after, the months after? How you know how long did it take you to sort of to deal with that as such? Oh, I mean that was crazy because um, I've sort of known in Wales and UK and stuff, but um, that kind of took my sort of profile from like a UK recognised rugby player to like a worldwide recognised rugby player. So. Because yeah. um, obviously it was a controversial topic. It was all over. It was everywhere, wasn't it? And, yeah, for sure. Um, that was like, I, I thought, someone said to me, you're going to go to a World Cup at 22, <laughs> Captain Wales, get to a semi-final, but you're going to get sent off at 70 minutes in the semi, but you're going to come home a national hero. I'd be like, well, how is that possible? Like, I just, I don't know how that could work. And I remember like, I say a story which is true, it was a couple of days after when I was walking to my hero mm. to try and get me off in the third place playoff. And I walked down this one street and there was all these, it was like probably about 100 yards long, 1,500 yards long. And there was all outdoor like seating, like cafes and bars and stuff in the middle of the day. And there was all sorts of fans there, every, like all sorts of coloured jerseys, like sort of littered the place, all having a good time. So we went to walk down, it was me, Gatland, and like three of the members of the coaching staff, like press officer, lawyer and all that, all suited up with our ties on. So we just stood out like a sore thumb. <laughs> And uh, I was like, oh, we can't go down here. We have to, we have to turn around because I haven't been out in public and I wasn't sure people were going to start booing or I don't know. I wouldn't, didn't know what, yeah, to, what yeah. I was going to expect. I don't know if people thought that I was dirty. And in my whole career, I had one red, only that one. I had like three yellows in my whole career. But I didn't, I always prided myself on discipline. I was clean. And I think like I averaged, someone showed me a statistic in my international career, I averaged like 0.3 penalties a game. But, you know, I was always really adamant about discipline. Be sure. competitive and be be like a, a force at the breakdown and disrupt it, but do it well within the laws and like be squeaky clean. So 
So I'm not a dirty player, but I thought that might have been the perception. So I started walking down the street, and then the first people either side, group me, was like all like stood up and started cheering and clapping. And then as I walked down like a Mexican wave, they all stood up and started applauding me. And I was like, oh my God, that, that was so overwhelming because yeah. it was the first time I realised that a lot of people had, had my back, really. And the quarters beforehand, I did the same tackle on uh, Irish number six, Stephen Ferris, on their number 10, Ronald Gara. The dump tackle was a thing, mm. which I'm sure a lot of 30 plus year old guys listening to this now are players. We grew up on a dump tackle. Like pick someone up, yeah, put them on yeah. their back hard, and that's just how you stamp your authority, you know. And you do it. Obviously, you don't want to hurt anyone. And when I did the tackle, I remember thinking my first thought was like, "That's going to look awesome on my highlight reel." Like I've, <laughs> I've smoked him, and I've got the ball back. I've jackled him. Yeah. I got the ball back. That's going to look brilliant. And then, like when I went off and it was the red, I thought, "Just go off and don't complain." I always thought that. I never complained mm. like like a soccer player over it. It really winds me up that. And then I looked at the big screen when I was on the side of the pitch and they replayed it obviously to the stadium. And and I looked at it and that's when I was genuinely gutted because it looks so much worse than how it felt. Like that's not what I'm like as a person. Yeah, like you play seven because you love the physical confrontation. I wanted to go out and, and hit people, but you don't want to you don't want to hurt them no. like that, you know. So that's when I was genuinely gutted. So I came home and like as all the press were asking me about, like, you know, for six weeks, people from all over the country just coming down just to ask me about the red card and it was about six weeks later that my granddad passed away. Right. And I sort of say this story because everyone's always like, oh, how's the red card? How's the red card? And I thought, I thought it was bad. But then he passed away. And then you kind of think, oh, like, and that was just like a wake-up call for me that makes you think, God, oh, there's more important things in life to worry about than a red card. And I was apologetic. I know Welsh fans were gutted. There was, there was over 60,000 Welsh fans in our national stadium at nine o'clock in the morning watching that game on a big screen. And it, was, it just went crazy back home, the support we had. And they were all good, and I saw footage of that stadium afterwards when I went off, and it was like a morgue of yeah, silence, yeah. you know. But so I felt terrible about all that, but it just makes you realize that family and health is the most important thing, and that's what actually put it to bed for me. But yeah, it was mental. Like mm. the, the few weeks after, well, to be honest, even now, I still get asked now about <laughs> it, particularly this World Cup time. I was going home after that 11 World Cup, and I was in supermarkets walking the dog. I couldn't do anything without people like running up to me and hugging me, feeling sorry for me, like Welsh fans, middle-aged women, and cars yeah. pulling over, people pulling up outside my house. There was this song uh, that people dubbed. Uh, it was called the, it was Sloop John B, and it was, um, but they changed it to with Sam, our captain, we'll bring the cup home, so we got right. a decent run. It sort of went viral on the internet, yeah. back home and stuff, and people pulling up outside my house with their windows down and their cars, blasting this song out to me and cheering. I was like, this is just <laughs> meh. Oh my, and I lived in a relatively normal house back then, yeah. I just broke through and stuff. It was crazy, but um, yeah, that was um, from like a, a PR, like mm. I didn't do it for PR, obviously, no. but from a PR perspective, that just like, yeah. catapulted me into the sort of stratosphere of World Rugby really. No, I, I certainly think it's it's what's unquestionable that that World Cup is such did did announce yourself on the world stage and you'd go on Thanks. to to Captain Wales obviously for the next few years <clears throat> deal with a lot of injuries a lot of adversity um, but I guess the one constant through all that time and and still is today is is Warren Gatlin he was your only Welsh coach wow. um, and you know yourself leading the team along with him coaching was was instrumental in this 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 generation of of Welsh players I'm I'm sort of thinking. Um, Jonathan Davies, Mike Phillips, um, you know Lee Halfpenny, Gethin Jenkins. You know yeah. the list goes on of this this nucleus of the team. Sort of, regardless of what happens at this World Cup, Warren's had an outstanding tenure as coach of of Wales. What what would you um, how would you sum him up in a in a couple of minutes? I guess. Oh, so I always say, and probably in New Zealand, that doesn't know what I mean by this. And I, <laughs> when I say back home, I say I just very Kiwi. 
<laughs> and then uh, you guys might think, well, what does that mean? Yeah. But to me, it's just like he just oozes confidence and relief, right. and and that's and that's rubbed off. So like Wales, before we come in, we're kind of we're we're a small nation, you know, yep. and you're next door to England, who have great population. They have, you know, more wealth, more influence. It's just like you know they've had more success from a sporting mm. perspective. It's just the way it is, you know. It's not I'm Welsh as they come, and I'm as proud as punch to be Welsh, but that's just the facts, you know. So yeah. you're kind of used to almost being in England's shadow kind of thing. And I think Welsh people are kind of used to being underdogs. And we went through an 80s and 90s period. We had a brilliant period in the 70s. Um, but 80s and 90s, there wasn't a whole lot of success from a rugby point of view. So then people were almost used to Six Nations. We were coming fourth. And, yeah. Oh, third, second, brilliant year. But, you know, kind of used to being that mid-table, just sort of, you know, sort of team. Then Gatman came along and he sort of changed us from being just like that to like a team who genuinely expects to win and like, mm wants to compete at every Six Nations, wants to be competitive and beat Southern Hemisphere teams, which our record wasn't very good. And the truth that that's because we weren't good enough. Like, so people are like, what's the excuse? Well, why did you beat New Zealand for X amount of years? I'm like, well, we're just not good enough. Like, yeah, we've had we have had a good team. We've had a really good team um, for 10 years. But, you know, we're not the greats because I always look at, like, from a Northern Hemisphere perspective, 2003 England, when they won the World Cup, they beat the Southern Hemisphere 14 times in a row yeah. going into that World Cup. Right? That's, that was the benchmark. So for me, I'm like, that's always what I sort of aspired to be like. So I always used to say to people back home, I'm, like, I'm not going to celebrate if we beat New Zealand. And they, they say, that's ridiculous. Why not? Because I said, because we haven't beaten them for like 63, 4, 5 years, whatever it is. I said, if I celebrate yeah. like it's Christmas, that just shows our inferiority. Because yep. New Zealand would not celebrate like that if they beat Wales. Because they're used to being better than us, you know. So I always hated being the underdog and being number two. Like you train and sacrifice so much to be number one. So I said, yeah, if I beat them once, I won't celebrate. Which is why Lions second test when we won, I didn't celebrate. That's just half a job done. If we beat them twice, because you can have the rub the green for a game, or yeah. like for example, Sunny Bill red card. You know, the referee decision goes your way. Um, you know, bounce a ball, whatever. You can win a game. But if you win twice in a row, then you can categorically say that moment in time, all right, we're better. You know, so yeah. I wanted to back that up again the week after and win again. So you can say then, yeah, no, we we won the test series. We were better than New Zealand in that summer, which would have been awesome. So yeah. so if I win twice, I'll celebrate, but not once, you know. And that was just what I was like as a person. So we had a good team, Wales. We were very dominant in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, recent years, we've been good, actually, against yeah. South Africa. You know, managed to get a good few wins, four wins against South Africa in the last four, five, six years. That's gone pretty well, but... Uh, Australia got our first victory in like 10 years, but New Zealand has just always just been like, you know, they got that monkey hanging on that back still. But then you look at it, it's like, well, look at the last 10 years. Like, they've been so dominant. Yeah. Like, you know, we probably haven't seen a more dominant team in, in sport, you know, mm. ever. Like, really, you know, it's incredible. So, um, yeah, we had a really good team. We had a very good team, but that's why I kind of was hoping to hang on this World Cup, because to be great, like the truly great team, you've got to go away and do something like a World Cup. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess... Um you know, it's a, it's a nice segue into the Lions because that probably is is the moment that you you made had those achievements and really did you know like you say establish yourself you know as a worthy yeah. great because you've had those series victories and and if we jump right forward to 2017, obviously you've had the 13 series um, behind you now. You are you were the captain of that. It was a successful um, tour down under, very successful. Won the won the Test series and played some fantastic rugby. You led the guys yeah. um, during that tour, which was Somewhat of a surprise again, a very young captain, 24 years old at the time. Um, and then you're to, there to do it all again, um, come New Zealand. There's a great part in the book around um, 
you know, uh, your honesty leading up to the second test and just, you know, your physical and, and mental exhaustion. Obviously, oh, this is your last, yeah. you know, you wouldn't probably know it at that stage, but last last couple of games of rugby, the second and third test. Yeah. Was was that second, was, was that sort of fortnight, second and third test, uh, one of the most difficult of your, your career mentally? So, so I always felt like hard done by online. So I managed to play in test series by the skin of my teeth, but... Um, Say in 2017, for example, I probably had one of my best six nations I ever had. So I, yeah. I played, I picked up two or three man of match awards, and I was like, oh, I'm, without saying arrogant, I wasn't even nervous when I get picked for the Lions. I'm like, I have to get picked. Yeah. I've been so good. Like, every flanker I played against in the home nations, you know, I would have either got man of the match or was one of the better boys. I was like, I, I, I got to get picked. I just have to get picked. I know I, I, know I do. Mm. So then I was going into that tour feeling like, right, this is perfect now. I'm like 28, probably in my physical prime. Yeah. Just coming off the back of probably my best six nations I've ever had. One of two, so 2011 was the other one. Um, I'm like, literally, this is perfect for me now to go to New Zealand. Then I got struck down, I got a, uh, an ankle ligament injury, and I was out for two months. And for me, I'm a sort of player, like, if I'm out for two months, that, that rocks me a bit. Yeah. I'm not naturally aerobically fit, so I have to work, re- I need to get game time. So that's why it probably took me about three, four games on that tour to get me back up to speed again because that's my first game back from injury was when we played our first game on tour so I was sort of a little bit like oh, I want to just put I want to go to New Zealand which is like the best mm. rugby country in the world and put in a top account of myself I'm going in off the back of injury so there was those pressures and as captain if you're not playing 10 out of 8 out of 10 hammer comes down you shouldn't be captain so you've got these pressures to come back with straight away you've yep. got to rock up as captain before otherwise there's all this pressure about you're going to drop the tour captain for the test which is huge but injuries wise going to those test series I had both ankles strapped up both knees both shoulders my elbow and my hip I was hanging on by a thread I was dealing with all sorts of and they weren't like injuries where they needed surgery straight away but say like ligaments for example your grade 1 to grade 4 I had just like loads of little grade 1 grade 2 niggles all over me but I'm like well I can't miss this I can't miss the Lions tour to New Zealand This this is the pinnacle you know so I strapped myself up, I was battling through injury, chasing back form, going through the pressure of being captain anyway, and I put a huge amount of pressure on myself to, to win anyway and try, because I want to be like the greatest Lions team that's ever lived. Yeah. Go to back-to-back world champions and do that and win, we would have been the greatest Lions team ever, you know? So the sort of challenge was amazing for us. I'd much rather that way, because the carrot dangling in front of us was amazing to, to try and win that. So yeah, so it was like second test for that game, and this is what I was talking about with like people don't see the other side of being a sports person. I was I was on the phone to my mum at two in the morning, and back home it was two in the afternoon as she could speak to me, just being like, if there was a taxi now outside this team hotel, I feel like chucking my bags on it, and I'll be in the air, go to the airport, and I'll be in the air on the way home before they even know we've woken up. Like, do you know what I mean? I just well, you almost look like a way to escape because the pressure is just yeah. too much. Don't get me wrong, you get through it, and yeah. then it's fine. And when I played a game, from from kickoff to the final whistle, I've never been nervous in a match, ever. You're in your comfort zone there, and that's what you love. But the anxiety and pressure beforehand is sometimes like, you just think, what am I putting myself through this for? It's not worth it, you know? And that's how I felt pre-second test. Yeah. And uh, Because if we lost that, you know, we would have lost 2-0. Everybody's saying, like, back home, uh, I don't know what it was like in New Zealand, but back home, I think 90% of people thought we were going to lose 3-0. Optimistic people thought it was going to be 2-1. Nobody thought we would draw or win, mm. really. Maybe one percent of people had that belief, you know. And that was probably the squad, yeah. to be honest. But yeah, um, so it was hard. It was hard. I think a lot more, um, you know, what I think certainly the New Zealand public maybe took ourselves as favourites, but we then started to see the the 
the rugby you guys were playing throughout that tour, and it, and it in a way it became quite evident the test side versus the the midweek side, and you guys put in some you know great performances against the Crusaders, a great performance against um, the New Zealand Māori team as, as well, um, two really comprehensive wins of, of what looked like a shadow test side, um, yeah. and then like you say, go to Wellington have that have that um, you know that mentally and physically exhausting week that leads up for you. You know, a fantastic win in, in terrible conditions. I was there at the game yeah, it was with rain, um, and then you head up to Auckland, and and as we know, it's a an eighteen all draw, fifteen all, eighteen. I think all. it was yeah, fifteen or eighteen. Yeah, fifteen or eighteen. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a. What, what did that feel like when the when the final whistle blew? And oh, so I was um, we were doing the like, sharing the trophy lift for Kieran, wasn't yeah. and uh, Kieran Reed, and I was like, if you could toss a coin, would you go extra time? And he was like, absolutely. Like, you don't you don't want to share a gold medal in the Olympics. Yeah. I didn't want to share a test series. And both teams, no matter what would have happened, if we did extra time, we got a winner. Well, over the 380 minutes, both teams like technically didn't lose. So like both teams mm. would have had a lot of credibility to come out of that tour. And that tour was a huge success from a rugby perspective, wouldn't it? You know, because to the to the fans, I guess, outside of the Lions in New Zealand, it was like, oh, because they're neutrals, oh, this is brilliant for rugby. Obviously, New Zealand fans wanted to win, like 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 the Lions. But yeah. I'm like, toss a coin, let's go for kickoff. So imagine this: sudden death, golden point, like drop goal, penalty, try. That, that, imagine that for entertainment. Yeah, like, so you get a winner, but over the three eighty minutes, you could say, "Oh well, we we were unbeaten, like it was a draw." So I thought we had nothing to lose, but it's not Lions tradition. There's been one drawn series before, and they said if that was the eventuality, then we keep it. But I remember when the final whistle went. And this is really naive of me to say this as a, as a captain. The final whistle went, and uh, I was cramping up like hell. You know? like, so I wasn't probably match fit. I was fit, yeah. but I wasn't match fit because I was coming back from injury. So the physio come on, and I grabbed this water bottle off him with ice and tonic. I dragged 500 mil on the head, bang, within seconds. If it was a pint, like it would have been legendary in a team social. <laughs> and I necked this isotonic, and I was like, mate, and I was telling him to stretch out my calves. And then I looked around. And then everyone was just shaking hands and it was really sort of mellow. And I thought, I was ready for extra time. I was getting ready for extra time. And my physio went, oh no, that's it, mate, it's drawn. So I literally was like, what? <laughs> How? Like, I was just yeah. so ready to go for another 20 minutes. And then everyone was shaking hands. And I thought, oh, wow. And then, so straight away, it's like anticlimax, you know? Like I was like, oh, I can't finish like that. But the, as time goes on and I look back, I'm like, and that, that picture of when, um, I remember we were at the trophy lift and then uh, Jerome Kaino come across mm. and uh, he said, oh, should we mix the boys in? And, uh, oh, yeah, good idea. So called in the Lions lads, Kieran and Jerome called over the, the All Blacks boys. And we all swapped in, didn't we? And there was that picture. Yeah. That's probably one of the iconic so, like, modern pictures, if, mm. maybe of all time, you know? Like, it was a great picture. So I can see how it's great for rugby from that perspective. But, yeah, I was just a bit of an anticlimax for me because I was desperate for a win. <laughs> it certainly was. It was, a, it was a fantastic series to... To one follow and two as a support. I mean, the lines, the supporters that come down is, is incredible. Um, the whole concept is is brilliant and yeah. and long may it continue. In in my opinion, before we move off um, the book and you know we theoreticals are silly, but but they can also be fun. If I if I was to put one thing to you and say, you've got a choice of extra time in the third test or you've got a choice of turning your red card into a yellow card. <laughs> what would you say? Do you know what? That's a good question because I've done a lot of interviews in my career. I've never been asked that. That's a good one. Um, yeah, that's a good question. That's a good we one. We can get back to it. No, no, that's good. I, I think I go away for time. Yeah. I, I wouldn't... 
Think of it, I wouldn't have changed the red card because, um, not that I wanted it to happen, but I always think things happen for a reason. Yep. So I got that red card and um, I think it developed me as a person and our team to go through that adversity. And then the two years after, so I had that red card, Six Nations after won the Grand Slam, won all five games, won the Grand Slam. I'm pretty sure that red card was a motivator mm. now because the final game of that Six Nations was France, you know, so like that was a big motivator for us. The following year then, we... Um, we backed it up and we won the Six Nations again. We beat England in the last game of the Six Nations, 30 points to three. So like we won two Six Nations in a row. Then the following year, 14 of the Welsh lads went on the tour to tour. Australia. And then the 13 of us played in the final test when we beat Australia. So I think, well, after that red card, the, the next two years after, there was a lot of success from a Welsh point of view. Yep. So maybe I wouldn't change it. I think things happen for a reason. But I would risk and go for the extra time because if I was a... You know, a test player who beat the All Blacks, you know, in 2017. That stuff. And that's why I told the players beforehand. I was like, if we win this third test, our names, this team will be set in stone forever. It's probably the greatest ever Lions mm. team. That's that's what we're working towards, you know. So I'd toss a coin and go for that. Because that yeah, would have yeah. just been like a... Well, that would have been literally a dream, dream finale of, of anyone's sort of career, really. So... Yeah. Yeah, I'd probably take a risk and go for that. Go for that one. Brilliantly answered. Always the always the team man, which is um, <laughs> which is great here. Um, let's move let's move along a, a bit away from the book now. Let's maybe look forward to this exciting month of of rugby ahead of us. Um, like I mentioned before, today's a Thursday before the first round of pool games. Um, so when this is next week, possibly the, the weekends well, the weekends matches would have been played. We'll know a little bit more about the New Zealand pool. Obviously, they play South Africa over the weekend, but. Uh, Let's talk about Wales. I mean, so impressive in the Grand Slam this year. Um, can't read too much into summer internationals. There was a lot of different up and down results. How excited are you to see what this Wales team can do over the next month? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Um, the Grand Slam was the best defensive display I've seen, mm. which kind of does sum up the North and South quite, you know, quite well. So, like you were saying about the Lions tour, we played a very Northern style yeah. of rugby where it was. Uh, kick for corner, line out ball, scrum, kick chase, like and, and physical dominance. That's like Northern Hemisphere rugby. So that's how Wales played in the Six Nations, and now it's creeping into the North now a bit more. The the, the emphasis of you know you got to try get three four tries a game, like yeah. you know where normally it's just like people are happy going three six nine twelve. But I think now when you go to World Cups, you're like you know, you got to score twenty points a game if you want to win a World Cup minimum. You know yeah. that's like the realistic what you got to try and aim for. So yeah, Wales have had a mixed summer. Um, lost three up four. I'd say a couple of those games were experimental. So you're yeah. always going to like. It was realistic. That it was going to be like play four, win two, lose two. Like you know when you're playing against sides. So you're pretty much like Ireland and England and Wales. They've all been level for the last like over the last ten years. They've been pretty much in fifty fifty games all the time. You know. Mm. So we have obviously played two games against Ireland, two games against England. So I'm thinking realistically, like you're going to get fifty fifty results with the chopping and changing. Then like I guess Wales going to this World Cup. If you went back three months ago, compared to now, the difference is is like three months ago we had Toby Fafita, who was one of our world class players. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, like you've got world class number eights for me. Um, over the last say like five years, you've had um, Kieran Reid, obviously. You've got Toby Fafita, Sergio Parisi. You know, you've got these kind of boys, um, Dwayne Vermeulen. You know, these are like your top, top number eights in the world. Um, Toby was in that bracket. You know, he was mm. in that group of leading number eights. He's gone, like so. He's fractured his collarbone. Not even going to come back for the last stages. He's gone. Gareth Anscombe, who the yep. New Zealand folk will know, you know, he's at the Chiefs when they won the Super Fifteen. Yep. Um, 
he's injured and he, he was our number 10 who sort of was leading the charge in the, in the Grand Slam. So he went. Then you lose three out of four games. And then now, is, I'm sure it's come out uh, back home for you boys that our attack coach has been sent home due mm-hmm. to like sort of, some sort of betting. Um, uh, sort of, I don't know what he was involved in. He was involved in betting, right? yeah. which you just can't do. Well, he's been sent home. So there's an investigation going on with Rob Howley. Who's like a Lions winning coach, a Lions player, a Welsh winning coach? So like, when you said if somebody said that to me now, I'd be like, oh, that's not ideal. Like going into a World Cup, that's really not ideal. But I think because it's been such a stable group of players and coaching staff, you'll have the initial distraction of forty-eight hours of everyone ringing, texting, press coming to the hotel asking about it. But once Japan kick off on Friday against Russia, once South Africa and New Zealand play on Saturday, then like. It's old news, and people then there'll be new things to talk about. So yeah. um, I'm excited. You know, I just, Wales, the Australia game is a big one for me in the pool stage. There's three pool games which stand out to me. Mm. But Wales' perspective is Australia. If we beat Australia, I think we've got a, potentially a really good, realistic run chance of a run to a final. Yeah. If you lose, you're likely to play England in the corner, you're likely to play New Zealand in the semis. It's just going to be much tougher. So Australia game is huge. The um, the Japan Scotland game's massive last game of the of the pool stages. That's going to be effectively a last sixteen shootout to see who gets in the quarters. And then obviously this Saturday, and I was just looking at the team for it as well. South Africa New Zealand is just going to be yeah. that could be like two thousand seven where England played South Africa in the group stage, and then you go back around opposite sides of the of the World Cup and you meet again in the final. That wouldn't surprise me if that happens you know, this time round. So that game, those three games are going to be massive. But Wales have to be Australia. Yeah, and let's talk about. Um because you've touched on it in, that, in, in answering that question, um, the style of play. So let's talk about Japan. Obviously, you know, daytime rugby, a lot warmer. Um, super rugby matches there are typically fast and, and wide and expensive. Um, you've touched on the fact that, you know, to win those Lions series, it was a, it was certainly an arm wrestle. The weather in those Wellington yeah. test matches was really wet and rainy, as was yeah. Auckland. Um, Six Nations, Wales, like I said before, so impressive. I, I talk about... Um, the Scotland match and the defence yeah. showed in that early second half, <laughs> the, the England match and the, yeah. and sort of soaking up all of that pressure in the first half and then and then turning the ledger in the second half. Will will the teams and this goes for all teams? Do you think they'll have to change their game plan to suit these these fast running conditions in Japan? Yeah, I think so. Where Wales when they play good, like they they normally have a watertight defence, normally got a really good defence. That's pretty much a given. You can see that watching England now, like the way England are playing, Ireland are playing. The whole blitz thing, like you know, yeah. it's massive up north. So, blitz, you know, um, aggressive in the contact, and then it, and then sends always sends someone in to compete, and then try and have forty other guys in their field. That's how like you defend in the north, you know, just like rapid line speed. Um, try and almost like you almost like trying to force pressure on the teams yeah. without even making contact, just having line speed. So if like a number ten is getting a ball from from the south, he, he wants to just have all he wants in his eyesight is just if it's from Welsh percent, just red jerseys all on his periphery, just because he knows they've flown up. So you can't even get beyond that thirteen channel. That's kind of like how uh, teams try to play. But for me, um, for this World Cup, and like Wales are quite comfortable doing this, and this is where they're getting a bit better. You've got to be willing to counter attack and take a few more risks from counter attack, mm. and that's where you get half your possession these days. So like. You see team training sessions and sides will just like practice starter plays off scrum and off line out. But actually your greatest source of ball is from counter-attacks or from kick receipt or from turnover. You know, that's where you get most of your possession from. So that's where the top teams in the world with great back lines, I think, they get that ball from counter-attack positions and they cause damage. So, you know, yeah, you need a watertight defence, you need yeah. to have all these things, good set piece, but when you receive the ball off counter-attack, however you get that turnover or kick, you've got to be able to have an effective 
sort of counter-attack really so that's where I think and Wales are quite good at that actually yeah. you know, they're quite good at attacking from deep and when you've got guys like Liam Williams at full back and George North and uh, those guys well you've got some real good running threats then so that's what I think the teams from North will have to embrace a bit more is mm. be a bit up a bit more opportunistic and they counter attack and take some more risks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head and, and you point to players like Liam Williams, we saw what he did in the in that third Lions yeah. test series when he when he ran it back in the in the first test. Yeah. Um, you know, he's very a dangerous player yeah. from the back. Um England, <clears throat> what, a, what you know, just a quick word on them. They were obviously um, very impressive against Ireland a few weeks ago, ran yeah. in a lot of tries. A great game against Ireland in the Six Nations. Yeah. Um, however went down to you, uh, to you boys in the Six Nations, what are you sort of thinking of, uh, England will bring to the table? So whenever I played England, it's almost been as simple as the most physical team wins because that's yeah. like that's their game. So England now, if and you can see the way their games work, and I, I played, I've been coached by their coaches on the Lions tour, played many times. They're the sort of team you'll kick off to them, you kick high in a second row, they'll catch it. All eight forwards will go run that ball and maul you up 20, 30 yards. And they either get a 20, 30 yard maul or they get a penalty. So from kickoff, they've got pretty much an attacking line out in the, in the opposition's 40. So that's sort of like, that's how England play. They want to scrum and then they want to, like now it's great for them, they've got Manu Tuolangi back. So for me, yeah. somebody said a really good stat. When England, play, in the last five years, they said, how many times has Mako Vunapola, Billy Vunapola, yeah. Marutoji and um, Manu Tuolangi played together? And it was something like, it was something ridiculous, like four minutes. Yeah. Or, or something stupid, like, or something that they hardly have. So when they, but when they do play together, not four minutes, sorry, it must have been like four matches, sorry, in the last like, um, it wouldn't have been much years. more though, yeah. I can't it's, even really remember. But they haven't like played an 80 together, you know, because okay. injury and stuff. But when they have, they never lost. So they're like, that's basically this game plan. Now they've got these massive ball carriers who are so key for them. Like, if you can beat England physically, you're going you're gonna to win. Yeah. You are going to win, you know. So that's how you combat England, you know. And if they got Billy Vanapola fit, Manu Tulangi was looking like he's hitting the heights that he did before. These boys are genetic freaks from like in a compliment, like from like a, a physical perspective. They're just Polynesian boys are powerful. These boys are powerful Polynesian lads, you know. They are like and Pacific Islanders. They are like explosive boys. So Maro is a great leader for him. Owen Farrell now has really matured into that iconic leader that England have needed for the last sort of yeah. five, ten years, I think, since probably Martin Johnson and Wilkinson have left. So, like, the cogs are all kind of coming yeah. together at the right time for England, so it's good. But if they can keep this pool of players fit, uh, and they're a confident bunch anyway, then, yeah, they're going to be a force. They yeah. are. And they're not going to be... They have got wing likes. They've got uh, Joe Thockner Singer, I think it's from Virginian Descent, who's looking yeah. like he could be likely to start in the wing. He's going to have a bit of X-factor about him. So, Johnny May is probably one of the quickest players in world rugby... So they sort of they got a backline as well. It looks like it can shift on top of the big athletic forward pack they've got. And I've always said teams who've got those intelligent, skillful, dynamic, athletic forward packs normally do pretty well in World Cups. You know, you need your big aggressive athletes to win your set piece and, and contact over your ball, but you need to be well coached and skilled at the same time. England have got a pack like that right now. They've got and I always thought big difference between the north and south was Southern Hemisphere front fives have players who can ball play and who can carry. Yeah. And we haven't had so much of that north. You know, you just have somebody who's like a set-piece sort of focus prop, for example. But England are starting to get front five players who are athletes who can carry a ball handle, which is kind of why I think they're probably in the best shape right now going to the World Cup. Yeah, I think you, I think you did right. I think dangerously, from a New Zealand point of view, I guess, the, the cogs are coming together um, for England, like you say, getting all those, those big players back. Um, Ireland, on the other hand, have... 
um, you know, top of the world 18 months ago, and even even 12 months ago had, had a fantastic win over New Zealand. Yeah. Have been a bit up and down of late. Obviously lost Sean O'Brien um, for the yeah. World Cup. Johnny Sexton not quite reaching uh, the heights in the, in the most recent yeah. Six Nations that he did to win in World Player of the Year before. Um, they're obviously number one in the world and going in with that tag. They a big, huge threat, you think? Um, even the number one in the world, I'd have them probably like fifth favourite. So, you know, I, for me, the number one team in the world is New Zealand, you know, and like, I think because they've won it twice in a row, people are almost like, if you're not New Zealander, are always willing, like they're sort of talking to themselves, oh, Ireland got the best chance, South Africa, yeah. and they're nurturing well, they're doing really good. England are peaking, Wales have had a good 12 months, but I think, what I said, uh, if it has to be 12 months ago, I'd say Ireland. If it has to be six months ago, I'd say Wales got a great chance. If you ask me four months ago, I'd say South Africa and England. If you ask me now, I'm like, we're being naive. Honestly, I'm not just saying this come on here, but we're being naive <laughs> if we think New Zealand aren't going to be there. Like, so New Zealand are the team to beat. Like, New Zealand, without doubt, the team to beat. I don't see Ireland personally. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just looking at if New Zealand got a tough best run, don't they? And, and yeah. it's worth noting Ireland's quarterfinal is is the loser of South Africa, and New Zealand. Yeah. And they're on, a, you know, they're on quite a tough. So I just, I just don't see him pulling through. I yeah. just don't think Ireland have, they, they were brilliant when they beat New Zealand a couple of times in the last few years, but they, they just haven't hit those heights. It's not just for the summer series; it's been about twelve months now. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure if they're going to be able to claw back the form that they had twelve months ago. Fair enough. And then maybe just a quick word on um, New Zealand, but maybe more specifically, you know, given it's a, it's a role you played in the latter half of your career. We've seen this the. The unconventional shift, I guess, from a New Zealand point of yeah. view of, of Artie at six and Sam Kane at seven, that's something they haven't done um, previously, or not for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, but you played that role with Sean O'Brien in the Lions and, and yeah. a lot with uh, Justin Tipperick yeah. for Wales. Um, what do you make of that that combination, Sam Kane and yeah. Artie Severe? Oh, I love seeing that. Oh, I think that's brilliant. And uh, I know New Zealand have always had like a sort of your stereotypical six. And it's normally been someone of like Maori descent who's been a big sort Jerome of physical, or, yeah, Jerome, yeah. and going back even further. Um, you know, they've had those like, some legendary players be blindside, but like I survey carries like any blindside in the world. So mm-hmm. like he's probably one of the best forward ball carriers in world rugby. Literally, like, I think he's brilliant, and as a, and like Sam Kane is just like such he's so good at breakdown, like yeah. just clear out, like competing on the ball. Is ferocity in the tackle. I think as a pairing, I think as though Sam Kane is still like what six foot two, Ali Surveyor still a great athlete. Exactly. Kieran Reid six foot three. So like, you're not actually losing line out ability. You've still got two huge locks anyway mm. in metallic and white lock. So like you're not losing line out ability personally. You don't think you're losing that because you're not losing any height and they're and they're still athletic. You're not losing any ball carrying ability. So for me, I'm like. Yeah, I'm, I think it's the natural thing to do. Like, I think it was great. Yeah. If I was playing, basically, at a compliment, I would not want to be alone number seven playing against those two boys. Like, because you're up against it from day one. So, I'm sure Wales might have a similar tactic with Navidia Tipperick, perhaps. Um, Pocock and Hooper, you know, that's obviously probably mm. the most well known sort of dual yeah. open side combination. Um, England is starting to employ it now with, with Tom Curry and Sam Underhill, who perhaps some New Zealanders won't know, but they're going to have a big impact on the England team. Like if, if I'm going to say anyone from New Zealand to look out for someone who they might not know, I'd watch out for the England back row, Tom Curry and Sam Underhill. Sam yeah. Underhill was man of the match against New Zealand in last year's November series. 
their two boys were going to be like the future of open type flankers in the north, you know. So yeah. um, they can have themselves. But that combination of Sanke and Ardi, I think, is going to be brilliant. Yeah, certainly lots to look out for. And even talking about it over over this sort of discussion just makes you so excited about yeah. what's ahead. It's obviously the pinnacle of rugby, and, and fantastic that it's underway. Um, extremely quickly to finish, you're ignoring the permutations of the draw, um, but your four semi finalists. Who would you list? I'm going to go with. Um, I'm not sure if it can work out this way. Yeah. I think the four teams, best teams, are going to be uh, New Zealand, South Africa, England, Wales. But I'm not sure if it's going to work out that way. So I think England will meet New Zealand, perhaps. And then Wales might meet South Africa somehow. But it, I think they're the four teams anyway, who, I, who wouldn't surprise me. They'd surprise me least getting to the semi finals. Um, but the, the lead in charge of three for me is New Zealand, South Africa, and England. England. Yeah. Right. There it is, folks. That's um, all we've got time for today, Sam. It's been, you know, a fantastic discussion. I think I could talk to you for hours. No, and cheers. Hours. It's been it was, awesome. There's so much more to um, to talk about. Like I said at the start of the uh, podcast, Sam's uh, book, uh, The Open Side, is out now um, for our New Zealand audience. It's available in Whitcalls. It's available at the warehouse. Um, and as the cliche goes, all, all good bookstores. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I guess all good e-bookstores these yeah, days. I'm, it, yeah. I'm certainly a convert to... Uh, to the e-reader um but sam you know on behalf of all of us here at, at new zealand rugby and the all blacks i guess you know firstly congratulations for the book um but more importantly if it hasn't been said before um congratulations on on what was a fantastic career i mean you played rugby in the spirit you know that it deserved to be played hard but fair all the time um you won over all of our hearts in 2011 like i say and um and you continue that on for for the five or six years after so a massive you know congratulations from us and a thank you for all the the memories you've given us over the last uh, no worries pleasure to be years. on the part and it's been a privilege to come down to new zealand and play these two lads i've always loved it my favorite place to tour in the world was new zealand without a doubt it was brilliant so uh genuine privilege and i'll thank you very much good on you thank you very much thanks for cheers jesse cheers oh, 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 oh.